Today's podcast is sponsored by Second Harvest Food Bank, a nonprofit dedicated to helping fight hunger in the greater Nashville area. Did you know that one in seven Middle Tennesseans struggle with hunger every day? This September, help Second Harvest raise awareness on social media so that more of our neighbors understand the problem. Here's how. Step one, grab a paper plate. Step two, write what you can't do on an empty stomach, like I can't focus on work or I don't have the energy to get through the day. Step three, Share your photo online using hashtag HungerActionTN and tag Second Harvest on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. It takes a full stomach to keep going. We need to make sure that no child, adult, or senior ever runs on empty. Welcome to the Nashville Scenecast. I'm Steve Cavendish, the editor. On today's pod, we've got a fascinating interview with David Ewing, an attorney and historian here in town who's been part of a project the Ryman Auditorium's been working on, which is centered around the 125th anniversary of the Mother Church. Ewing talks to us about what he's found, why the Ryman moved the Confederate gallery sign out of the main auditorium, and some of the best stuff he's uncovered while digging into the Ryman's past including how in 1972, a Neil Diamond concert kicked off a tradition of pop stars playing the venue when they could easily sell out bigger places. As always, thanks to Jeff the Brotherhood for our intro music, Diamond Way, from the We Are the Champions album. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Rate us and leave a comment. And now, here's scene writer Stephen Elliott with David Ewing. Thanks for listening. Stephen Elliott, a staff writer for the Nashville scene. Uh, today we've got David Ewing with us. He's a historian, attorney, researcher. He's been working on a project for the Ryman. And uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for being here, David. It's great to be in the ugliest building in the Gulch talking about the most beautiful building in the city. <laughs> That's a great line. Thanks. Uh, so how did you get interested in Nashville as a, as a place and a historical subject? Well, my family has been here since day one. We came on over on what was the equivalent of the Mayflower, I guess, of Nashville with James Robertson and John Donaldson, but we were slaves, my family. And so my family has lived here the whole time, and they're buried here. And Nashville is an interesting place. It's, it's a city full of great history, great institutions, and we all stand on what happened here hundreds of years ago today. And, and so what are some uh, projects you've been working on lately? Uh, I know we've seen your name in the news a couple times for, for various things around the city. So wh what have you been up to? I have a long history to-do list. Um, I recently worked on getting uh, Capitol Boulevard named after Ann Dallas Dudley, one of our leaders of the suffrage movement. I found the obscure mugshots, which I had been looking for for 15 years, of Congressman John Lewis in our police archives. And another kind of thing that I uncovered after driving by a Douglas Park in East Nashville and wondering, there's no Nashvillians that are named Douglas that are worthy enough to have a park named after them, that 
the park was named originally after Frederick Douglass and then the Metro Parks uh, Board or the National Parks Board at the time just re-changed the name and nobody wanted to honor Frederick Douglass anymore. But we fixed that and now it's Frederick Douglass Park again. We called you a, a couple months ago to ask about the Confederate Gallery at the Ryman. Uh, there was a prominent sign that said 1897 Confederate Gallery hanging for decades in the auditorium. But for the past several years, that sign was occasionally covered with one that just said Ryman Auditorium. Uh, so can you explain why that upper level was called the Confederate Gallery? Yes. When the Ryman was built in 1892, it actually had a different name. It was called the Union Gospel Tabernacle, and it was built by Captain Tom Ryman after his very famous conversion on the corner of 8th and Broadway by the minister, Reverend Sam Jones. And Sam Jones was this traveling minister, kind of like the Billy Graham of the 19th century. And he came to Nashville for a couple weeks and pitched a tent and invited people to hear his twice daily sermons. And Ryman was one of the first people on May uh, 10th in 1884. And after hearing the words of Sam Jones, he uh, had this very famous conversion And after his conversion, he really thought that people like Sam Jones and others should not have to be in a hot tent on the corner of a Nashville city street, and there should be a permanent building, tabernacle, if you will, for Sam Jones and others. And so it was on that day that he had the vision to build um, what is now known as the Ryman Auditorium. What ended up happening, because the 1890s was a very um, financially hard Um, period of time for America and Nashville, it was hard for him to raise the money. Originally, he wanted to build a $100,000 building. The outside of the building was exactly how he imagined it, you know, with the high-pitched roof, the great brick, this kind of gothic-looking structure. But the inside, they really had to skimp on. Um, There was no stage when the Ryman opened. There was no balconies when the Ryman opened. And it was a very bare-bones kind of open hall. And it was more important to Ryman to get the building open, so his original plans of having a gallery had to be put on hold. So in 1897, we celebrated our 100th anniversary of, as a state a year late because of the same bad economy that affected Tom Ryman. And... A group of city leaders wanted to invite the uh, United Confederate Veterans to have their three-day convention here. And so they reached out to them, and of course they were interested because Nashville had a lot of veterans and um, battles, Civil War battles. But they you know, looked at the building and they said, yeah, it's kind of too small for us, and we're probably going to build a building at Centennial Park. At Centennial Park, during the exposition, there were a lot of buildings that were built that were temporary buildings, um, including the Parthenon originally. And if you've seen old pictures, none of these buildings are still around because they weren't meant to last. And so the city leaders kind of went back to them and said, well, we had this plan to build a balcony at the uh, Union Gospel Tabernacle. Would you come there if we finished our plans? And they said, sure. Now, the balcony cost about $12,000, and the building already had about $15,000 worth of debt that Ryman was every day trying to uh, retire and really couldn't. And so a group of civic leaders you know, set out to raise the money for the balcony, but they built it anyway, even before it was paid for. 
And out of the $12,000, I think they raised about $7,000. And what ended up happening, um, because they had their convention, the convention came here in June of 1897, was there for three days, and they were at the, um, and they enjoyed it. And then afterwards, a couple months afterwards, they had their kind of final accountings of their convention. And they had a surplus of about $2,300. And they felt, had we not been at the Ryman during this time, we would have had to build one of these temporary buildings, and it would have cost us about two dollars or $3,000. And so they, out of kind of uh, respect for Tom Ryman bringing them here, and also out of just kind of a moral obligation that since the Ryman built this $12,000 um, gallery, they decided to, after their convention was over, to donate the remaining balance, which is about $2,300. And in gratitude for that donation and them coming here, a sign was put up on the front of the balcony that said, you know, Confederate, um, Confederate Gallery 1897. And so what have you done with that sign now? Well, this is where it gets kind of a little bit mysterious. So the sign was up there from 1897, Till as far as I know, 1974, when the Grand Ole Opry moved homes to their new building, and the Ryman sat empty for basically about 20 years. During that period of time, there was a lot of people, contractors, and just scavenger hunters kind of in the building. And as a collector of Nashville memorabilia, I have seen things, you know, being sold by dealers that purport to be from the Ryman, from um, bathroom signs to old radiators to... Uh, fire extinguishers, and I think during that time, something happened to the sign. When the Ryman reopened in 1994 after Gaylord Entertainment, uh, now Ryman Hospitality, spent $8 million fixing it up, the sign was apparently not there when they had their grand reopening celebration. There was a letter to the editor in the Tennessean that someone wrote that really praised the fact that the Ryman did not get torn down and it was going to be reopened. And But they, you know, wistfully said, well, what did you do with the sign? We, we missed the sign. Put the sign back up. And I think shortly thereafter, uh, the sign that we see today went back up. I don't think that was the original sign. Looking at that sign closely... The letters seem to be rather modern, almost made of plastic. And if it was my guess that the original sign during the dark years, somebody took it, something happened to it, and it never got you know, um, preserved during that time. They didn't take it through the new Opry House, obviously. And afterwards, when someone you know, made mention of where's the sign, someone made a reproduction. And that replica, that reproduction, where is it hanging now? The replica is on the Fifth Avenue vestibule side, which was right above the old entrance of the Grand Ole Opry in the Ryman. So if you came to the Ryman before the renovation, you entered on the Fifth Avenue side, and there are those famous pictures of a line of Opry patrons wrapped around the block on Lower Broadway waiting to get in. And upstairs on that Fifth Avenue side... There is a museum or a timeline of Ryman history. The Ryman is 125 years old this year, and we've celebrated kind of all the performers and speakers that you could see on the wall. You could read about Teddy Roosevelt. You could read about Louis Armstrong, Mae West. 
Um, and there's just a rich history in the Ryman, and so that's one of my favorite places to kind of hang out because you could kind of see all this wall of 125 years at once. But in the corner of the Ryman, on, on that vestibule, um, the sign is kind of hanging near one of the stairwells and kind of below one of the original windows looking out on Fifth Avenue. It's also next to one of the original fragments of the balcony. So when they did the 94 renovation, originally the Ryman sat 6,000 people when they added the gallery because the gallery literally went around the whole building almost like kind of a crescent and touched both the north wall on each edge. Uh, patrons of the Ryman today will notice that there's a backstage area and they improved it with better dressing rooms, better bathrooms, and more space for our performers. But right now, that took up a couple thousand seats because they basically uh, made the end of the, you know, kind of public area kind of parallel to the stage. So if you go to, to take a tour of the Ryman today, which is one of the best kind of places to learn about country music, learn about the Grand Ole Opry, and this amazing, well-preserved building, if you go upstairs after taking uh, seeing this movie, we have this new film called The Soul of Nashville, which is narrated by you know an actress playing Lula Naff, talking about all the great performers and all the things that have happened in the 125 years history of the building. And the tour, before you get to go downstairs on the Ryman, you end up in this vestibule on Fifth Avenue. And you will see the Confederate gallery sign next to this part of the balcony that um, was removed. And you could actually see on the part of the balcony that was removed the original Victorian kind of painted design, which they recreated when they did the 95 restoration. And why did you feel it was necessary to to put it in this separate place out of the, the main auditorium? Ryman Hospitalities this year had a lot of thoughts about this signature building, which literally their company is named after, and how to interpret the history of the building. There have been so many famous moments in Ryman history, even outside of the Opry's um, almost 40-year run there from 1943 to 1974. It was bought up that, you know, as we interpret the, this great building, a lot of people didn't know what the sign meant, why it's there. And during the day, the Ryman is this wonderful museum of country music history, of musical history, and of building history. And at night, if you come there to see a concert or show, you see the sign and there's nobody to tell you about the history of the building or the history of the sign, and including the performers. So I think, they, I think the best thing was to move the sign into the museum space and have a large interpretation about why the sign is there and the history of the sign. And today, you know, almost kind of branding of the building, and nowadays with social media and everything else that, like that, you want your building name to be very prominent for performers and people that come. And so now the sign just simply says 1892, the year the Ryman opened, and in Ryman Auditorium. Like you've said, this year marks the 125th anniversary of the Ryman. Uh, and you've been studying more than just those th 
three days of the Confederate Veterans mm -hmm. Reunion. So what are some other um, things you've found that have surprised you? The thing that really surprised me about the Ryman is the vast diversity of the types of performers that came to the building. And the other thing that I'm amazed with of doing more research on the Ryman is how many times literally the building probably should have been closed or almost got torn down because what was going on with the Great Depression competition from uh, movie theaters and even jukeboxes. Uh, Lula Nath, the very famous Ryman manager who managed the building over 50 years, during the era of the silent movie era, she had a very famous quote that you know, kind of talked about the fate of a lot of vaudeville houses and uh, old Victorian theaters, said, why would someone pay a dollar to hear Billy Sunday, who was an evangelist, when you could see M Mary Pickford for a dime? And Mary Pickford, of course, was the biggest star in, during the silent movie era. And Lula dealt with the, the competition by stepping up her game in the Ryman's game. She booked acts like nobody's business during that time. And she had a belief that if she bought quality acts to Nashville, people would come. And she was right. Whether it be a Broadway show, a symphony performance, a blues singer, or a um, John Philip Sousa. She had an eye for bringing the top talent. She bought Houdini to the Ryman. She bought Will Rogers to the Ryman. She bought Marian Anderson to the Ryman years before the whole DAR controversy in Washington, D.C. Lula was very smart to kind of know what people wanted and bring things to Nashville. We were very centrally located. We had a good train route, but back then people weren't flying into Nashville. So most of these great performers that you see on that history wall came in through Union Station and then a few blocks away they came to the Ryman. And more in the, the modern era, we, we sometimes see performers uh, performing at the Ryman who maybe could fill something as big as Bridgestone. Um, and I think Harry Styles was coming in a few weeks, mm -hmm. someone like that. But that's been the case for a while. Uh, someone was telling me about a, f a famous Neil Diamond concert. Yes, this is one of my favorite kind of modern Ryman stories. So Neil Diamond the, it was 31 years old in 1972, and he reached out to the head of the Ryman because he wanted to play the Ryman. He had actually just played at Municipal Auditorium. You know, almost 10,000 people saw him there. But it would have been a lifelong dream for him to play this building, the home of the Grand Ole Opry. He had grown up listening to country music. He did not consider himself a country music performer, so when he called the head of the Ryman, he got a lot of pushback. And he said, well, Mr. Diamond, you're a big deal act. You just played at Municipal, and we can't afford you, basically. And, and Neil just wouldn't take no for an answer. He said, it's my lifelong dream to play this building. You've got to let me play. And it's interesting, at the time, the Ryman really did not have very many musical bookings. You know, Pete Fontaine had performed there. Um, Duke Ellington had performed there, I think, in 1972, but not very many artists at all. It was, it was not because of the competition for Municipal Auditorium and the fact that the Ryman was still unair-conditioned, which by modern standards, even in the 70s, who wanted to play in a venue that did not even have air conditioning? But 
Diamond was able to book two shows because he just said, tell me how much it costs and I'll just do it at that price. And so when he came here in 1972 and performed all his great hits like Sweet Caroline and Cracklin' Rose and all the, you know, the, the, the audience was mesmerized with him and he just, you know, once again thought that this was such a lifelong kind of honor to play the Ryman. But what Neil Diamond did not realize at the time, he started a tradition that nowadays artists who can easily sell out an arena or even a stadium want to play the Ryman because of the history of the building and because of the acoustics, too. The acoustics are the best in America. And it's interesting, part of my research I wanted to find out, did they know the acoustics were good back in the 19th century? And the answer is yes. Tom Ryman, after the gallery was built, they did a kind of test in the building where his back was to the south with the north door um, on the lower level and someone was up front and very casually in a very um, normal voice said, Sam Jones will be speaking here next month. And Tom Ryman in a kind of Watson come here moment said, I could hear every word you said. And they at the time said, and we still say this today, the acoustics are better than any other venue in America, with maybe the exception of the Morbin Tabernacle Choir building. I guess the other thing I wanted to say was, so the artists today, like Jack White, the Foo Fighters on Halloween, uh, Garth Brooks had his kickoff of his Sirius XM channel there. They could easily play somewhere else. And it's the dressing rooms are still not the largest ones compared to larger venues. And, you know, but they play because they love the building. They love the intimacy of the building and the how close the fans are to them. And you can play, I mean, a lot of these stadiums are built by the same company and they're designed the same way. But when you walk into the Ryman and you think about the people that have played there from Hank Williams to Johnny Cash to Louis Armstrong to Nat King Cole, you are really surrounding yourself with great history. And I think that is why we still get people that want to come, you know, people, Bruce Springsteen played there, James Brown played there. You get people because, you know, it's a 2,300-seat venue. There are not a lot of big stars that want to play those venues because they can make a lot more money other places. But because of the building, it's a bucket list thing for a big performer. If you haven't played the Ryman in your life, you know, you want to, and that's still true today. And the the experience is similar for the fans. Um, they see those those steel beams. Mm-hmm. The uh, the pews they sit on are the, the same ones that were installed in the 19th century, right? Yes. When you when you sit in at the Ryman, you feel like you're kind of going back to the 19th century because the you know you're in the original church pews that Sam Jones had and Tom Ryman put in there. The kind of you know Victorian design of this gallery ahead, and you just feel like if you look out at the Ryman, it looks the same as it was during that era. You know, absent the kind of changes of the stage, and so people. The, the Ryman has never been more popular for bookings. And 
there's no bad seat in the Ryman. And I think because of the history of the building and how great the building is, there's not a bad concert in the Ryman, too. You're just happy when you're sitting in the Ryman and hearing good music and being in that experience. When the Grand Ole Opry left in the 70s, was there a, a movement to tear that building down? The Grand Ole, National Life Insurance Company, which owned the Grand Ole Opry and owned WSM, had, and owned the Ryman since the 60s, had been looking for a more modern home. They hired a consultant who basically designed Disney uh, land and Disney World to consult with them. And basically, the consultant came up with, you should have this theme park out near the airport. So Opryland theme park opened in 1972. And then the the original plan was always to have a brand new building built for the Grand Ole Opry. Interestingly enough, in the Opry's previous homes, including the Ryman, none of those buildings were built for the Grand Ole Opry. The Opry just went into those buildings, including the War Memorial Auditorium. The old Belcourt Theater had a couple years of run of the Opry. And so National Life Insurance really did not want the competition of someone else putting another show, kind of a barn dance show in the old Ryman Auditorium. So it was their plan to tear it down. And they actually said that they wanted to tear it down when the new building was completed. A group of preservationists here in town, including Dr. Ben Caldwell, who just died, and then Fletch Koch, Nadine Eberling, and many others in the historic preservation community thought, if we lose the Ryman, that will be one of the worst things that this city has ever torn down. So they put a lot of pressure on national life to preserve the building and not tear it down. They were very close to tearing it down. And a matter of fact, one of the plans of tearing down the Ryman was they were going to take the bricks and the pews from the Ryman after they tore it down and build a church out at the Opryland theme park called the Little Church at Opryland. And basically, had they done that, that building would have been gone too. But that was their idea of historic preservation in the early 70s, that they could take the bricks of the Ryman and the pews of the Ryman and create another church. And of course, that just made the historical community more outraged. It's like, how can you call that historic preservation? Um, A very famous New York Times writer named uh, Louise Huxtable wrote a scathing article calling out national life for wanting to tear down this building. And of course, they used all the arguments that you hear today about people that don't want to preserve an old, unique building, that it's too expensive, it's not architecturally significant. They actually said that, and it's kind of outlived its use. And if it weren't for people putting the pressure on national life and this letter from the, this article from the New York Times really put a lot of pressure in, and that was the turning point, that they at least did not tear it down. We were lucky it did not burn down or just get uh, torn down by neglect during that period of time. And it wasn't until the early 90s that Gaylord Entertainment, now Ryman Hospitality, decided that they were going to spend $8 million and renovate the Ryman and bring music back to it. They originally did not want to bring the Opry back to it because the Opry had its home. Um, But now we're very lucky during the winter months, the Grand Ole Opry returns to its uh, famous home during that era. And what were some of the early events in the the 90s when they were trying to reopen and then once they had reopened? Some of the events in the 90s were, you know, kind of country music driven. 
Um, they also had a very successful run of some live theater. There was a performance called Always Patsy Cline, which a lot of Nashvilleians remembered. It was a kind of uh, stage performance of the life of Patsy Cline. And, and so they originally, the programming was to kind of bring in some different kind of performers. Like I said, during that era, you know, people like Emmy Lou Harris, who's very instrumental in helping keep the pressure from them not tearing down the rhyme, and people like that perform. Uh, in 94, when it reopened, Garrison Keillor uh, brought his Prairie Home Companion and kicked off the kind of reopening of the rhyme. And, and it's just kind of morphed. It's interesting that originally the bookings were, you know, people like Elvis Costello and Bruce Springsteen and, and others, but now there's a wide diversity of performers at the Ryman, whether it be speakers, comedians, musical performance, award shows. It's, um, you can do anything, even though it's 2,300 um, seats, you could do about any kind of performance in the Ryman, and people just like it. Is there anything else from your research that um, you think people would be interested to learn, uh, particularly, or? When Tom Ryman built the Ryman after this great conversion of his, it's interesting that he meant for this to be a building of all religious denominations and all walks of life, black, white, rich, poor. He did not see this as just a building for one set of Nashville. And he would be very happy that you know the building is still standing and that basically it is welcoming to all. And as the Ryman celebrates 125 years in this legacy of this great place that he built in 1892. If you look at the performers that come into the Ryman and even our tourists that come daily to tour the building and what they get out of it, it is kind of an anchor of Nashville. When you think about Music City's brand, you have to think about the Ryman. The Ryman not only brings patrons here to concerts, it brings artists, and it's always kind of, even before our popular honky-tonks downtown, there was music downtown. When you thought of music in Music City, there was the Opry at the Ryman on the weekend. And that sustained us for a long, long time. During the kind of ups and downs of country music, we, um, we always had good music at the Ryman. Well, thank you, David. I hope to see you at the Ryman again again soon. You will. It's my favorite place to see a concert. I have seen James Brown there. I've seen uh, Aretha Franklin, Dinah Ross, Garth Brooks, the Foof. I mean, all these great places, all these great people have been there. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.